and welcome to the official Depression to Expression podcast, my friends, where we have an honest dialogue about mental health. And as you know, mental health affects everything and anything, so there are no limits to this podcast. But today, we have an amazing guest, Dr. Stephanie Reinold. We're going to talk about food. We're going to talk about mood. We're going to talk about body positivity. Let's get into the nitty gritty here. Enjoy and talk to you soon. Here we go. A three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to Depression to Expression. Now, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I, I don't have a name for the podcast yet. This is an early episode. So let's just call it Depression to Expression for now. My name is Scott St. Marie, and we have an awesome guest on the channel and podcast today, Dr. Stephanie Reinold. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So we did a collaboration. Oh man, if we look back, it was it was months ago. Time flies. Yeah, maybe even a year ago. And I don't think we touched too much on when I, when I had you as a guest. Um, I was actually, if anyone wants to see the podcast, I was on. Stephanie has a, a great podcast. Um, it's called It's Not About the Food. And we did two episodes together. And I think I'd like to take the opportunity to just ask some questions about uh, you know, especially in the role of food and mental health, I think that can be a very obsessive thing. And I actually learned something very recently, something called orthorexia, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. It's that obsession with healthy and clean eating, which I think with social media is is very, very popular today. The role of of being in that perfect physique and healthy eating and how we can overthink um, this this eating that these eating uh, patterns that we have, and especially with healthy eating, do you think it's social media that has really changed this perspective of eating for us? Well, it definitely hasn't helped, right? I mean, I think it definitely makes it worse. You know, there's pretty strong research, specifically Instagram, and I think just because of the visual nature of Instagram, people that spend more time on Instagram have more higher levels of disordered eating or eating disorder behaviors. So that was actually really interesting research that came out about a year ago, which just kind of confirmed what we already knew about social media. But honestly, this kind of obsession with healthy eating probably dates back, you know, centuries, even if we want to, you know, go back to just even, you know, Hippocrates day where people were sort of becoming obsessed with the idea of food as medicine. And I think personally, that's where I see it kind of starting because it is this obsession with health. And so because, you know, there's access to quality healthcare issues, oftentimes, you know, food or supplements, those are more accessible to people. And so finding, you know, a quote unquote health coach is going to be more accessible than actually finding a doctor. And let's be honest, a lot of doctors, even the best of us, don't actually know a whole lot about nutrition. So you end up with this really interesting kind of elitist type generation where it used to be decades past. And this is probably maybe starting in the 50s, 60s, where it used to be kind of poor people had to focus on food or supplements for health because they didn't have access to a doctor. So it's like all they could have access to is like changing their habits. Now it's almost swung this other way where it's almost a very elitist thing and not to go on this tangent of like socioeconomics, but that plays a part in your health. And I think there's a lot of people that don't trust mainstream medicine or they've kind of been burned by doctors. And so now they become really obsessed with this quote unquote alternative space. And so it's now become kind of the cool thing, which is driven by social media because we see like the popularity factor of these things, you know, these things like Whole30 and Paleo that, that kind of claim to cure all your medical problems, right? Like you hear of like the anti-inflammation diets and, and all these things that are coming out when, I mean, we can go on a later tangent about things like that. But I have a lot of problems with it because of the mental health piece of it that people forget about. You know, it's it, technically you can look at two different people and maybe they have the exact same healthy habits, 
but one is truly suffering from orthorexia or a mental illness or obsessive compulsive disorder, which is essentially what orthorexia is. It's the OCD of the eating disorders. Or, and the other person might actually be completely healthy and whole of a person. And you'd never know from externally. So, I mean, definitely social media has like kind of flipped society standards in that way where we don't actually see this as a problem, which is the biggest problem. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I read a study uh, just a few days ago with, with in the last three years in the UK, uh, people going into a merge for, for eating disorders has, has tripled in the last, or sorry, doubled in the last three years. And it's something that I've never, I wouldn't say taken seriously, but I didn't know it was such an issue until you kind of read all this data. And I'm more focused you know, on the depression and anxiety side, but within that too is, is, I wouldn't necessarily call it a symptom, but you have disordered eating and, or eating disorders. And I know there's a difference there. Um, so just, I know we had a bit of a rocky start in the introduction. For everyone watching, um, Dr. Stephanie Reinald is a, a board psychiatrist, okay? But you are actually taking a lot of interest in this food side, where I think a lot of us, when we think of psychiatry, we just think of medication, right? Why did you take such an interest in food, and especially with women's health, um, instead of just, I don't know, being a classic psychiatrist, you know, not many psychiatrists take this big interest in food and want to develop people's relationships and alter their relationships with food. How did you get into that? Mm -hmm. Well, it probably began from my own lived experience. You know, I had an eating disorder for over a decade, kind of spanning from early high school through college. Um, and so that kind of always drove just an understanding and an empathy for probably all mental illness, which probably actually helped me understand the role of a psychiatrist in general. Um, and I personally actually full transparency had overcome my eating disorder without professional treatment, which is not advised. And I saw how hard that was. I also just saw how much shame there was in seeking help, which kind of brought me to the online space to have a bigger platform because I knew what it's like to struggle in the dark. And you're just so distrusting of so many professionals. You get so much misinformation. You know, unfortunately, there's still a huge stigma against just seeking mental health care services. And so I really just at a broad level wanted to be a voice that, you know, hey, we're not all weird and crazy. And yes, some of my colleagues are, you know, there's some weird breeds of us out there, but I'm a pretty down to earth real person that I felt like had a really voice, you know, specifically for kind of a younger generation that might actually be more open to this stuff you know, the food kind of just happened naturally, you know, in my training in my psychiatry residency, I was in a women's mental health track. And specifically what that meant is that all of my elective time, my therapy patients, my continuity care clinics, all that stuff was around women's mental health issues, which was mostly perinatal mental health. So pregnancy, postpartum, infertility, loss, trauma, and eating disorders. And it was funny because what I saw, um, whether or not a woman came to me with the chief complaint of issues with food and her body, they were always about issues with food and her body. Hmm. So she might come with, you know, postpartum depression or anxiety or, but it always came back to an overwhelming discomfort in her body and her relationship with food. And I, I honestly just realized this is literally this is literally the cornerstone of most mental health problems in women. Like if women can feel good in the body that they're in, they're oftentimes happier, healthier, more emotionally mature people. Wow. Which is interesting to me because you know, I think issues of food in our body lead to addictions. I think issues of food in our body lead to depression, anxiety, problems in our relationships, our sex lives. Like I just saw it affecting every part of a woman's life. And I was like, this is a really controversial thing, but I cannot ignore it anymore because I have to start here with people. Like if you don't even feel good in the body you're in and you are constantly wasting so much mental capacity on just trying to shrink your body, trying to be this perfect ideal version, which y'all doesn't even exist. Okay. This is, we're comparing ourselves to these airbrushed 
images that literally don't even exist. And even if that person looks like that, it's like one day out of a year. And also we can talk about like what that actually takes to even look like that. And that I actually treat a lot of the same people that you are emulating for their quote unquote healthy behaviors because they come to me and they're miserable. Right. So it's just so much like kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's like, there's two stories out there in the social media world. There's like the backstory that I get to see as a psychiatrist and there's the front story, like what we portray to the world. And unfortunately, everyone wants to be like this front story, like I said, that literally doesn't exist. We're comparing ourselves to a fantasy. So that's kind of how I, that's a long story to answer your question, how I got into all of this. So I guess what I'm really interested in too is there's a lot of different ways to to help people in the mental health realm. You could you could be a psychologist, a social worker, a psychotherapist. Is there a reason why you chose psychiatry specifically? Well, I always wanted to be a doctor. So, you know, psychiatrists go to medical school. Um, for those of you who aren't really aware, don't believe me. Before I went to medical school, I didn't even understand the difference between psychologists, psychiatrists, all those things. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was an undergrad, I took all the prerequisites for medical training, you know, and I, you know, this was when I was still struggling with an eating disorder. So I assumed maybe I'd go into primary care or surgery or, um, you know, one of those things. In fact, I actually really loved OBGYN. I always loved maternal mental health, women's mental health kind of issues anyway, um, just in a different, a more medical capacity. Um, and then when I was there, I just, I don't know, I honestly just fell in love with it. It was a better lifestyle for me than other fields of medicine. Um, so at that point, I couldn't really career, I couldn't change the trajectory of my career. You know, I was already in medical training. And so, I continued down that path and psychiatry has been really a perfect fit for me. Are there things that you learned in medical school or things that you didn't learn that you wish you had in, in medical school? Do they spend a lot of time talking about this relationship with eating and and nutrition and everything like that? No, not at all. No. So do you think that's a problem? Absolutely. My goodness. We get, I mean, even eating disorders, you know, which we can talk about like dieting and the weight centricity of the world too, but eating disorders, which are the highest morbidity and mortality of any mental illness and often many medical problems, you know, coincide with eating disorders. We got no treatment. We got like no education on that at all, you know, and it was, Interesting, actually, the only time I even remember like this vivid memory that stuck with me was we had a very obese patient actually on um, a, a gynecology floor as a surgical patient, um, not, not a mother, so it's not obstetrics, it's more, I, I can't remember what surgery she had, but anyway, and she had all these complications. And I remember the doctor giving this really interesting talk to us that even people in larger bodies can have a lot of nutritional deficiencies. And that this woman being in the hospital for so long likely wasn't healing very well, not because she had like other complications, but because her nutritional status was so bad. And that was probably literally the only time that I even understood a connection between healing and your body and nu- nutrition in that way. Um, I did, I was in a dual degree program when I was in medical school. So I also have my master's in public health and part of my public health degree now did stress a lot of nutrition. And I, you know, that was my area of focus was nutrition in my public health degree. So I've kind of always had that as a, you know, a professional interest just to you know, intellectual interest of mine. So I've sought out ways to learn more, but I mean, my goodness, even in my own eating disorder days, just a short anecdote to kind of prove my point, because I was technically at still a, you know, quote unquote, normal body weight. But for me, it was a very low body weight. Like it was not where my body should have been because of all the medical problems I was having. I was having fainting spells. My, my heart rate was really low. Um, I got migraines. I had these large bruises all over my body. My hair was falling out. And they, I saw so many specialists. I saw GI doctors. I saw cardiologists. I saw hematologists. I saw all these different specialists. And this was when I was running marathons. I was externally by maybe society standards. I was super fit and healthy, quote unquote. 
but I was not fueling my body adequately. You know, I was eating a incredibly low calorie diet for the amount of miles I was running. You know, I was not healthy by any standard. You know, none of my blood work was healthy. None of my med like I had so many medical problems. Not once did any of those doctors ever think that it had to do with food, my diet, my, my lack of calories or my eating disorder. Wow. And no one ever asked me about any of the, that stuff. No kidding. I think that's a uh, uh, more of a common story than we think is you go to the doctors for a mental health issue and they don't really ask what you're eating, what your lifestyle is like. I think those are critical questions. Maybe a misconception though that I have and many people have, and I think we chatted in, uh, in a DM about this on Instagram, is, is it's more dangerous to be underweight than it is to be not necessarily obese, but overweight. Is there correct. more to it than I think? No, that's absolutely correct. There's been lots of research studies that have proven that. Um, it is, so the categories, you know, normal weight, overweight, obese, whatever, is really for research standards. Unfortunately, kind of population has taken that in pop culture to, you know, really define a person's self-worth, which is rather mm. unfortunate. Um, but they're based on BMI charts, which is largely very out of date. And I don't believe in the BMI as it's used for an individual instrument of health because it's, it's really more supposed to be about population health and we don't even use it for that anymore. Uh, but I digress. Uh, those kind of categories is what we look at and they actually have shown. So overweight category, if you will, um, or even obese one. So that's not like morbidly obese, but like the obese one category. Um, which I can't, I don't know the exact cutoffs because I don't follow that kind of stuff very often. That if you are up to 70 pounds overweight, it's actually correlated with better health outcomes and longer longevity of life than if you are even 5% under your body's set point weight. No kidding. But on, on either way, uh, if you're 70 pounds overweight, you can still, just like that example you had, you can still have those nutritional deficiencies. Yeah, Even if absolutely. you're overweight, I think people might think someone's overweight, therefore they're just consuming too much of anything. So how could they be deficient in anything? So, well, and oftentimes they are because they are often chronically dieting, you know, chronically restricting calories because they're continuing to pursue this, you know, thin ideal version and they're, you know, not getting the micronutrient status that we really need in our diet. I mean, let's be honest, most of us probably don't even, you know, the most quote unquote healthy of us. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, there's a time and place I think to focus on health. You know, when I'm working with my patients, these are people who've had clinical eating disorders or they're in very early stages of recovery. And I actually step away from sort of the health guidelines because I find to heal your mind, you often need to detach yourself from that fear that I'm unhealthy. And mm -hmm. so many of us have associated, I mean, so many of us, when I say that, it's like so many of us women have associated our self-worth to what we look like, but also we think what we look like determines our health status. And so I want you, because in my own recovery and in most people's recovery, you will gain weight. And it's such a counterintuitive philosophy, but I'm so much healthier now, you know? I hormones are healthy. I, you know, I, I'm now pregnant. I got pregnant very easily. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, it, but I'm at technically a larger body size than I was in my really, you know, maybe quote unquote healthier days. Although, you know, to the outside world, maybe people thought that, and this is the story of millions of women who go through this because unfortunately you years of restriction also will elevate your set point weight. So someone who never has an eating disorder, has never been on a diet, they will likely be at a normal weight their entire life. You know, the statistics show that actually they looked at men um, in their 20s versus men like in their 70s, and they were actually only about a five pound difference of each other, meaning that over the course of a lifetime, you're gonna probably stay within a five to 10 pound weight range. Right. What happens though, it's because 80% of women are chronically dieting, you're going to elevate your set point weight. So whenever you do choose to give up restriction or your eating disorder behaviors or just 
disordered eating, like chronic dieting, you're likely going to be at maybe a higher weight than you started at, which is a mind trip. You know, there's a lot of mental mindset work we have to do to understand, actually, let's look at this because you're healthy now, you know, you're physically healthy even though maybe you're at a larger body weight than what you think society is telling you. Right. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And then, you know, eventually people will come back to a place if health is a, you know, a priority to them, which it doesn't have to be to everybody. But if it is a priority, because it is for many of us, then you likely might come back to a place where you do want to prioritize those healthy habits and behaviors, but it's from a place that you're not focused on the aesthetics of your body anymore. I, I completely agree with that. And I think uh, your, your podcast too, uh, it's not about the food. I think, is that what it tackles really? Because at first we need to focus on the mindset, your belief systems, asking, okay, you're not happy. Well, why is your self-worth right, um, determined by your weight and what you look like? Getting all of that out of the way versus not tackling those and thinking that you'll be happy and this disordered eating will stop once I'm this weight that I've always wanted, right? Once I have the dream body I've always wanted. So it's not about the food in that case. I totally agree. But we can both agree that it is about the food as far as health and nutrition and how eating the right foods helps brain development, helps us with our moods, right? Food has a huge impact on how we feel. So where do we, where do we draw the line in saying, um, accept the way you are, um, accept where you are in this journey with food. But if someone comes to you and all they eat is, is 12 donuts a day. So where does that, where does that therapy session come in to talk about the specific food versus just the mindset? I think it's important to know where somebody is in, in recovery, you know, because first of all, if someone has struggled with an eating disorder, that's going to be a, a very different session than someone who's never had an eating disorder. They're just trying to improve their health. You know, for someone like you, Sky, like you've never had an eating disorder, you know, food for you has mostly been pleasure and fuel and health. And so it's going to be easier for you to make shifts around your food food habits and behaviors with a better mindset than someone who's predisposed to revert back to a diet mentality or, you know, that quote unquote eating disorder brain. Um, and so it's, it's kind of just going through the waters of like where you're actually at. Cause I think there will be a point in time where people need to make peace with all foods. So for example, um, you know, if you've had bulimia or binge eating disorder tendencies and you're somebody that constantly is binging on sugary foods and high carb foods, the reason you're binging on those foods is because it's seen as like the forbidden fruit. And so in order to heal your relationship and thereby honestly kind of get rid of the cravings, you do need to allow yourself those foods. And so in eating disorder, like that early stage of recovery, we will often put those into a meal plan for somebody. Like say they binge on donuts every day. We'll have you eat a donut every day because there's something called psychologically, it's called habituation, which means when something becomes like a habit, like I'm, I'm going to get this donut every day, it loses that forbidden fruit kind of feeling and thereby in the future, you're not going to binge on it, if that makes sense. Right. So I, I don't think when people make peace with food in their body, they're ever just eating 20 donuts a day. Like that's not, because what also sort of the next piece of that is really becoming mindful of your own body and how foods really do make you feel inside your body. And what's funny is these same foods that we're so afraid of, like, honestly, probably the simple sugars and carbs and things like that. That's what we're all kind of afraid of right now. Right. Once you actually start eating those mindfully, you realize they don't make you feel very good. And you will naturally develop just a broad array of healthy foods. You know, and mm. it's, it's people's biggest fear when they make peace with food that all I'm going to want to eat is brownies and cake and cookies every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, maybe initially because you've restricted all of those things from your diet, but I got to tell you after like a week or two eating like that, it's like that feeling when you're coming home from vacation and you haven't really 
been eating very mindfully or, you know, you're just eating on the go or, you know, you're eating like junky food or after holidays or something, you're going to want to eat a salad again one day, right. you know, you're, you're going to crave like vegetables and meat and a more balanced diet. So honestly, if you just trust your body and you listen to, if you listen to its wisdom, cause it's very smart, it's going to tell you that it doesn't feel very good. You know, you're going to feel sluggish and get headaches and feel anxious and your sleep is going to be off and you're going to realize, Hey, these foods don't make me feel good. Now, the real psychological work happens when people know that a food doesn't make them feel good, but they still continue eating that way. And that's where I really challenge, you know, is there a scarcity mindset behind all this? Like maybe, you know, a lot of people who grew up with financial insecurity or, um, you know, food insecurity, you know, people that grew up and didn't have like food, like a, a broad array of food access in their home, they will want to, you know, anytime they see like, a cake or a cookie or, or candy or something, they're going to want to eat all of it because there's this scarcity mindset that I'm never going to get it again kind of thing. Um, and so we work on that though. And it's like, you have to remind yourself, you can have this anytime. Mm. Do you actually really want it though? And to honor your body and to take care of your body and live in alignment with your values and your standards for your life, is this how you want to live your life? you know, and it takes a lot of work, you know, it's not something to do alone. I really highly recommend you work with, you know, a, a coach who does work with, um, you know, food peace or eating disorders, a dietitian, a therapist, a psychiatrist, someone like me who does this kind of work. Um, because working with a professional is just always so much better, honestly. I, I can completely agree with that. And I'm, I'm really interested in your perspective on, well, okay, I think I think we could both agree that that these eating habits, and let's just call them unuseful, unhelpful eating habits, if you're eating 12 donuts a day, that's a symptom for something else that you're dealing with. So once you deal with A, I think B and eating healthy and craving healthy foods will come as a result. It's not starting with the food, it's starting with something else. Can we agree on that? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's amazing. I completely uh, think that's fantastic. I, I want your thoughts on the body positivity movement and fat acceptance movement, which is getting pretty popular because I think in a lot of ways, how, how we're so polarized politically now and how society's really shifting. And my, my dad has a great analogy, I think, of what's going on today. It's, it's always a pendulum, right? And so we can be so far right. And now I think we're going very, very far left the other way. And eventually we're going to come into balance again but I think let's just say fat acceptance for, for just a, an example here that, hey, just like there's, there's bad doctors out there, there's bad psychiatrists, there's bad YouTubers, there's, there's all kinds of professions that do it wrong. And there's all types of influencers that do it wrong, whether it's fat acceptance, whether it's fitspiration, you know, being thin, airbrushing. I think fat acceptance is also a lot of these, a lot of these movements and posts are doing more harm than good thinking this is the way I am. I'm going to accept it and I'm not necessarily going to do anything to better myself. It's there's, there's a lot of, a lot of fat acceptance where people are eating donuts and they're like, I can eat a donut if I want. I'm fat. This is the way I am. This is the way I was born. I'm, I'm going to be happy with my body. But a lot of the time for that, maybe acceptance is easier than change. Maybe accepting is easier than actually going and getting help and dealing with those belief systems and, and changing your eating habits and doing some exercise regimes. Do you think we've gone too far one way with body positivity? And you can completely I, disagree. Yeah, I don't completely disagree with you. I, I will explain kind of where I'm at in my own just evolution of my journey, you know, and sure. I think... Um, First of all, I just want to make clear too, I, I see, because all these words are like buzzwords right now. So let me just clarify for everyone listening, if you've heard these words, um, intuitive eating, which is a book, it's a 10-step methodology about healing your relationship with food for people who are chronic dieters or who've had an eating disorder. That is a separate thing than health at every size, which is also a book. It's also based on habit change over weight change as a goal of you know health measure. Um, is a separate thing from body positivity 
is a separate thing than fat activism. So I personally see those as very like four distinct entities. And sometimes when you're new to this field or you're just kind of like learning about it, it all seems to overlap because a lot of people are all four of those things or a lot of advocates out there kind of claim that you have to be like, if you're this, then you have to be this. And, you know, I will say of those four, I, I, do very much promote intuitive eating. You know, I have courses that teach about that. I do very much promote body positivity because I think that's a healing part of an eating disorder recovery. Um, health at every size has been an interesting process uh, and entity. And honestly, by the book standards, if you've ever read the book, I do agree with that. I agree that people in all bodies should have access to healthcare. I believe that we should not be focusing on weight as an instrument of health. Um, but the way that it's been co-opted to include, you know, all these other, I think, minority mar marginalized groups is not something that I'm actually for. And I'm not, I'm not pro fat activism either, but I see all those as kind of four entities, just mm. so you kind of know where my platform is and where I stand. Right. I, I can, yeah, I think that's great. The in intuitive eating piece, but then we also look at the evidence health at every size statistically people who are morbidly obese and fat more likely to have heart disease, type two diabetes, joint the pain. One thing, yeah, the one thing I do wanna challenge though, what you were saying you know, a few moments ago though, is I feel like all of us grow up with a lot of fat phobia and myself included, a lot of people in fat bodies are very fat phobic and we make a lot of instinctual decisions based on what we think someone's habits are by the way that they look. And that is something that fat activism has taught me. And though, even though I don't consider myself a fat activist, I'm not in a fat body, you know, I'm not, I'm in a very average body. So I'm not the right person. You know, that's not my brand because I'm not the right person to even promote that anyway. I do believe everyone has the right to their platform. And for some people that is their brand and that is their right, um, to have that platform and some people need that you know if i was born in a large body i've always been in a large body that's just me i would want to see someone like me that looks like me in this world on social media with a platform so i'm very thankful for people in all size bodies who have these platforms and i think where outsiders i'm just going to call you an outsider scott don't take offense by it though but i think where outsiders get confused is that what they're saying is that you can just let yourself go and not pursue health and, and whatever. And I, I do think by and large, a lot of them appear to not pursue health because they are very extreme in their branding, which I think is just the world we live in. In order to get likes and followers and engagement, you have to be kind of extreme and controversial and which is not me. And, you know, they come across very angry, which is also not me. And they come across very bullying, which is also not me. So yeah. I, it's why I don't align very well with their brand, but I also respect them a lot because if that was me, I mean, they're, I mean, they're, every day there are kids that are bullied for their weight that might not even actually be in a larger size body. I mean, there's, right. there's people, girls we hear about that commit suicide because they were bullied for their body and this stuff happens all the time. So I am so thankful for people that speak out against crap like this that happens. That's just truly pure evil. Um, and I do think that all of us have to get past this fear of gaining weight. So that's where I draw the line. Like I think for many, like I mentioned not too long ago, for many people, recovery includes gaining weight, not everyone. You know, in fact, some people, if you've been largely emotionally eating or binge eating, when you begin to eat more mindfully and intuitively, you might lose weight. That's not the majority of people that are recovering from eating disorders, though. The majority of people recovering from eating disorders are going to gain weight because they were at a suppressed body weight because they've been restricting their food, their nutritional status is not good. And so I think body positivity is being okay with settling into the body that you were created to have. And we were created in a diverse array of bodies. You know, you look at dogs, not everyone is going to be a greyhound. Not some people might be little pudgy pugs. Some people might be shorter, smaller, whatever. We come in all shapes and sizes. And yet all we see on the cover of magazines and in movies and in 
you know, any kind of advertisement is this one minuscule population of this ideal beauty standard that literally is not attainable by 98% of society. So I think for the vast majority of people, and I'm talking to that kind of the middle people that, you know, I don't like numbers, but I'll just throw it out there. You know, the people that wear like a size six to like a 16, you know, that is what I consider like the average woman out there. And that's the majority of the people that I probably work with because they're not morbidly obese, but they're not a size two and they're never going to be that. That's not how their body was created. Maybe they've been that way when they had an eating disorder, which that's a whole other part of it because you're having to mentally detach yourself from a number and you have to mentally detach yourself from that belief that smaller is better. And so, you know, these fat activists that are out there are like, we deserve to take up space. And, you know, I actually really respect that messaging because I think it's very powerful messaging. And there's, there's a lot of really interesting correlations through history with, um, you know, feminism and the overlap between diet culture and you know, keeping women suppressed and small. And, you know, again, that's not my platform. I stay out of the political piece of it, like the feminist arm. That's not my thing. But mm -hmm. I do respect it very much because it's it's interesting. Um, and like I said, I think some of it is just branding. You know, I don't think, honestly, because I know people in larger bodies and they eat very normal, if anything, actually very healthy, nutritionally dense diets. They just live their life in a larger body. And so we cannot determine someone's health by what they look like. And that is a really, really, really important thing that I hope you, Scott, and listeners take away because there are so many things that affect our set point weight. And our weight by studies is just as ingrained genetically as our shoe size. So you would never, you know, and our height, you know, you, you would never say, you know, I'm, I'm a sh short petite person, I'm 5'3". I'd never say, you know, my, by June 10th, I'm going to be 5'7". I will be 5'7". No matter what I do, I will be 5'7". Uh, yeah, yeah. Yet we make these weight loss goals so dogmatic. And I, I want you to think about it that way. You know, I say this in jest so that it gets through to you because our weight is actually just as, you know, over the, really a range of about 10 to 15 pounds is going to be where you're going to be. And you might be able to suppress your weight through restriction and crazy exercise, but biology will always win out. There are going to be hundreds of hormones that are affected, you know, genetic markers in your body that are going to turn on and turn off to change your digestion, to change your hunger and appetite cues so that you will literally, like your body will literally tell you to like binge eat and to stop working out and all of the things to literally gain weight. And then when you do gain weight, you're gonna be more inclined to keep that weight on the next time you restrict or diet because our bodies were designed to protect ourselves against famine and starvation. So biology is always gonna win. So that's where being okay and comfortable in whatever body you're in is an important step to take. If and when you can be okay with that, that is when I think the mindset shift around healthy habits and behaviors can begin because it's a, I see that as like the last, like the, the sprinkles on top of the cake. Like that is not a first step because you're going to get yourself back into your eating disorder days. It's a final step for a lot of people because you're going to realize over time, actually, there are some things I want to improve. A friend of mine, she has a great story. You know, she had an eating disorder. She was a competitive figure skater for years, decades. She found a lot of acceptance in her body. She's just, you know, a normal body, maybe even a little larger body for, you know, a, a smaller, large body, if you consider that. Um, had her kids, was doing great, super healthy, just had a great life, you know. Um, all of a sudden, she had a really big health scare. She actually ended up getting diagnosed with a delayed onset type 1 diabetes She's now from this mindset of health, like true health, like literally she almost died, not aesthetics. She's now completely changed her lifestyle. You know, obviously she has to because she's now a type one diabetic and she has two small boys she's still raising. And her story is so perfect to me because literally she doesn't care what she looks like. This is not about aesthetics. And that's a really important distinction that I think women truly, truly struggle with. Like, are you going on this autoimmune diet or this whole 30 
for your health? Or is it really truly to lose weight and look better so that you can feel better about your self-worth so that you can get a boyfriend or get a husband or, you know what I'm saying? Like truly ask yourself those deep questions because that'll, that'll tell you a lot. Like maybe you can say, yes, it's for my health, but I really want to lose weight too. And yeah. it's so intertwined and separating that I think is the first step. I think that's fantastic. Um, you know, when I did that ketogenic diet, it was for, I'm on the health side. I am all for health. I, I believe any size, it doesn't matter if you're 400 pounds, if you are healthy and happy, I am on your side. I would never look at someone overweight and, and judge them completely. But am I right if I were to see overweight people more times than not, am I not right that they probably more likely than a thinner person have high blood pressure or more likely to be diagnosed with diabetes? Doesn't, doesn't overweight correlate with those, like just statistically a higher chance? Uh, so you're confusing two things. So correlation is not causation. So while yes, there's a correlation, not overweight, but obese, mm -hmm. um, obese status with, you know, other chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, things like that. Right. You know, the research though shows it might not and likely isn't because of the fat itself. So that's an interesting thing to note. So the example I give, it's similar to uh, smokers. Smokers often get lung cancer. Smokers often have yellow teeth. Is it the yellow teeth that causes the lung cancer? No, it's the smoking. And so where research is trying to connect the dots right now is what is that missing third link? Like, is it actually the excess adipose on your body or is it something causing the excess adipose as well as the medical problems? And this is where recent research has shown it's likely something else. One of those things being our stigma toward our bodies. You know, body dissatisfaction alone, literally body dissatisfaction alone increases your inflammatory markers. Oh, for sure. Cortisol levels and stress. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's just how we view our bodies. So that's not to mention how other people are stigmatizing our bodies. So like I said, again, coming back, like you've lived your whole life in a larger body. You've probably been bullied. You might make less money. I mean, those are all very well-researched statistics. Like you may have grown up in poverty because we know that low socioeconomic status is associated. There's just so many other factors that a lot of people in fat or large bodies cannot control, literally cannot control. We can't control who our parents were, what neighborhood we grew up in, how much money we make, you know, to an extent, you know, and yet people in large bodies don't get as much access to things. And, you know, this is, this is the piece where I really do respect what a lot of the fat activism movement is doing. That's not me. That's not my brand because that's not my life story. And so I can't really speak authentically to all of that, but I do understand where they're coming from because I think it's very true and very applicable. You know, for a long time before I went through this journey, I did unconsciously judge people in large bodies. You know, I saw them as lazy or, you know, that they can control it or they just need to improve their habits or they need to just improve their health status. And, you know, this kind of doing the work for myself personally has just really helped me see the world differently and see that hey, this person's life story is likely just very different from someone in a smaller body. You know what I'm saying? Like there's so many other things, like they might be in a large body because they've chronically dieted, dieted and raised their set point weight. And maybe that's caused a lot of their medical problems. Because we also know that yo-yo dieting causes a lot of these chronic diseases as well. And we know that people in larger bodies are more likely to yo-yo diet because they are stigmatized for their body size. So they think that the answer is dieting. So then they lose weight then they gain it back and they lose weight and they gain it back. And yeah. that is actually more dangerous than someone who just stayed at a higher set point weight for that whole time. Very interesting. So again, I think when we think about people being being overweight, we, yes, there, there is still definitely a fat phobia stigma towards these people and, and, and bullying at maybe every corner and every facet of life that they go through, whether it be school or work. So there are judgments, um, of course. If you were to give a message to to the women and the men, of course, but I know your brand is is towards women, which I think is fantastic. Um, 
what, what would you say to someone who is, who is overweight and, and, you know, they've tried maybe the yo-yo dieting and, and they're not happy with their body and therefore you know, maybe they're experiencing anxiety or, or depression. What kind of message do you, would you like to, to share with these people? Mm-hmm. I am all for incremental habit changes. You know, I think if you truly are wanting to improve your health, it doesn't have to be at, let me, I guess, say it the flip side. If you're truly wanting to improve your mental health, because I think all of this starts and ends really in the mind. For sure. It isn't exclusive to changing your body. You know, I'm not anti-health. I'm not anti-changing your body. I'm not even anti-weight loss. I'm anti-using weight as a marker of your self-worth, and I'm anti-using weight as a marker of health, because that's where I know it causes a lot of destruction. You know, the self-worth piece, it causes destruction because we spend our every waking moment, and you ladies understand, because it literally is your every waking moment, worried about what we look like, what we're going to eat, what's our next diet, what does so-and-so think of what we look like. That is no way to live your life. Like, period, end of story. Your life is bigger than that. You have goals to achieve. You have businesses to run. You got a podcast to start of your own. Like there are things, there are big goals out there that you cannot do literally if you are so consumed with food and your body. That is the best thing that I ever did for myself is got over my eating disorder because I was finally able to live my life. You know, after that, I met my husband. I mean, I had not had a successful romantic relationship because how can you? <laughs> when you're so obsessed with food and your body, it's impossible. And I know a lot of you ladies who struggled, I know you get it because you do. You get it. And you think it's the guy or you know your partner or whatever. No, it's you, girlfriend. You have to check yourself and fix yourself first. You're not going to have a successful relationship with anybody if you can't do that first. And you're not going to have the big life. You're not going to accomplish goals for yourself. But that also doesn't have to come at the cost of your physical health. You can choose to make healthy habit changes. I just don't believe in these like crash boot camp, insane diet plans with tons of elimination. And I believe in incremental changes that you can continue for the rest of your life. Like if you're doing something today that you literally cannot say, I will do this for the rest of my life, that's probably a sign it's you're still kind of in diet culture or you're just, you're going to revert back to other habits. You know, mm-hmm. like that's things like drinking more water, you know, going for more walks, like maybe like small steps toward improving your health while also working on your mind. Because again, there are people, I see them every day in my private practice. They lose weight. They get down to this perfect ideal body and they're miserable because they never change their mind. Mm-hmm. And then they realize after the fact, oh, wow, my life isn't all about my body because I look great on the outside and I still have a crappy marriage or, you know, my husband's still cheating on me or, you know, all these, they still have all these issues because they never fixed their issues. You know, that's right. what my podcast is about. It's not about the food. Like I talk about all the other reasons we're struggling with food in our body because because we don't want to tackle these tougher issues, which is our relationship problems, our financial issues, our, our goals, our career dissatisfaction, our infertility, like whatever these other stressful things in our life, oftentimes we turn to food and dieting as a source of control because we don't want to talk about these other painful things. But the more you avoid those things, the bigger the problems get. You know, there's like a little kid's book out there. It's like the green like guilt monster. And I always kind of see that as like our mental health issues too. It's like the more you ignore something, it just becomes this big monster on your back. And you finally are going to have to tackle it at some point. You can't live your whole life without it, whether that's now or 50 years from now. I mean, I think the best time is to start now. You bring up a great point about, about habits, that habitual thinking. I think once something becomes a habit, you don't really have to think about it anymore. You just do it. It's, it's habitual. At what point in your journey and maybe a lot of your clients, um, well, first of all, how do you know if you have a disordered, disordered eating or, or eating issue? Is it because for a lot of your clients, they're just constantly thinking, as you said, from the moment you wake up, it's like, what am I going to eat? 
if that's okay, if that's 50 calories, then I'm going to feel a little bloated there. So then I'm going to have to walk to work and I'm going to get to work. Is it that kind of thinking? And how do you, is recovery and, and that process about finally releasing those thoughts and finally not necessarily thinking about each meal, do the thoughts ever completely go away? Yes. I think they do. I mean, they can come back, you know, in times of stress, you know, I'll be fully transparent. Like, you know, pregnancy is a stressful time. Your body's changing. And my thoughts are a little louder when I'm pregnant because you're seeing your body change and you have, you know, that little monkey on your back. That's like, Oh, you shouldn't be eating that. Oh, it's not good for baby or, you know, it can come up. It's just that recovery time is so much faster. You know, it's like those thoughts used to literally, you know, be there for months. I mean, until I got rid of them. And now it's maybe five seconds. Like it's a fleeting thought. It comes in, it goes out. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. That's just like my little inner critic or whatever. Um, you know, I think people always ask, you know, what, when does it mean it's an eating disorder? You know, well, I like to remind people eating disorders are mental illnesses. That means it's in the mind. Now, we already talked a lot about how ignorant the medical profession is, and oftentimes the medical profession won't even diagnose an eating disorder until there's medical problems. Mm. I find that very ironic because my own personal story, I had tons of medical problems attached to my eating disorder, and no one still diagnosed me. Right. You know, nonetheless, I digress. These are mental illnesses. So you might not ever have any physical manifestations. You might not be losing your hair. You might not, you know have any issues physically, but usually there's one of three areas of your life that is affected by any mental illness. So this is whether you have depression, anxiety, OCD, whatever. And this, you know, comes out a lot of just psychological theories. There's three areas of your life that we look at for, you know, quote unquote dysfunction. And if one of these three areas is affected by your thoughts, your mind, essentially, it's likely, and you have the symptoms of you know, said eating disorder or disordered eating, likely there is a mental illness component to it. Whether that's just body dysmorphia, like your overall self-image is just so dysfunctional, which is probably the most common case of most women. Um, or it truly is like a binge eating disorder or bulimia or anorexia or, or other orthorexia or other kind of eating disorder element. But it's one of these three areas. It's work, so is it your career, your purpose, your ability to just be productive? Like maybe you're calling in sick to work every day or you've lost a lot of jobs or you have a very unstable work history because you're you know, so obsessed with food in your body or these thoughts are overwhelming you. Love, so that's your relationships. So you know, is your romantic relationships affected? You know, that was a huge one for me, um, which is a huge one for a lot of people. But that's not just that. That's just your friendships, your family. Are you becoming socially isolated? Are you not engaging with people in the same way? You know, that's a really big hindrance in most people that struggle with any mental illness. And the last one is play. Are you able to enjoy things? And this is a big one. Like, are you able to find pleasure in the things that have normally brought you pleasure? If your answer is no, there's something going on there in your mind, you know, because we should, as humans, be able to enjoy and live life. And so if one of those three areas, along with your thoughts, are just so consumed, that's a, that's a signal to me that there's actually a clinical mental illness going on. Just full of great information. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Reinald, for joining. I think the last thing we should do, and I'll go first, is we're going to just talk about some of our, our, our favorite, favorite treats. I'll go first. You know, I've actually decreased sugar consumption just because I, I know that, that raising blood sugar, and I can't sleep if I have dessert, you know, before I go to bed. So I've decreased sugar, um, but you always need a treat. And my go-to is tiramisu. I, oh, I, really? I love tiramisu too, yeah. That's that's like my favorite dessert. Unbelievable. The fluffiness on the top, the powdered sugar. Don't inhale the powdered sugar because that's dangerous at first. But it is so absolutely delicious. Okay, but you can't copy me. So we uh, we need three foods for you that are your... Oh, actually, and another question. So three foods that your your go-to treats, but then 
um, any kind of cravings or new foods or things that you're really enjoying since you're, since you're pregnant? Or is it too early in the game? It, it's probably a little too early. I actually am kind of just coming out of my first trimester. So I was really sick. So I probably had a lot more aversions. Um, yeah. And it's kind of a part of it too. You know, this is the first pregnancy I've been so in tune with my body and, you know, I'm not judging myself. I, I very much just listen to my body and, you know, my goodness, most of my diet has been like bread, crackers, cheese. Like that's the only thing I can really tolerate. And right. maybe a couple of bananas. Like, I mean, and that's, that's just part of like honoring your body. You know, I'm, I'm coming out of it. Like this morning I was able to have an omelet, which is like my favorite breakfast, um, that I usually have and like some fruit. I saw that. I saw that Instagram post that, that omelet looked delicious. Yeah. So I'm back to like a little more of my quote unquote normal diet. Um, but if you're, you know, you go through periods though, where you have to sort of honor where your body's at, whether that's in pregnancy or just sickness in general or something else, but, um, no treats though. Hmm. You know, it's funny because I'll just say, you know, I don't crave a lot of sugar, even though back in my bulimia days, that is what I always binged on was like, yeah cookies and sugar and all this stuff. And, you know, it's funny because once you give yourself permission to have it, you kind of don't crave it anymore. Um, well, my all-time favorite dessert meal last supper before I die would be a hot fudge brownie sundae with, with nuts and whipped cream and hot fudge and cherry and everything. That's oh like my, my gosh. That is, it would have to be in the classic sundae Classic, like, you know, classic Sunday cup. Yeah. 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 That's like all time. Like you could always get me with that. Um, my favorite, my favorite food. I've been really craving Mexican food all the time. I mean, I really love Mexican food anyway, but like good fajitas anytime. I love fajitas. Guacamole. Yes. Oh, I just love it. Like homemade tortillas. It's like my weakness. I love all that stuff. Um, and my favorite candy go-to, I love Twizzlers. That's kind of my thing. So I'll Now, is it the Twizzlers, the regular, or do you like the nibs? Yep. No, like regular, the whatever, strawberry, red kind. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in, I don't know, I'm sure in the States because there's, uh, you know, supersize me there and you can get extra large things in bulk. But in at the dollar store just across the street, they have these like two foot Twizzler packs. Have you seen those? Oh, wow. uh -uh. They're like this long. And you can just kind of put one end in your mouth and it drags on the floor as you walk by. It's amazing. So yeah. I think to close off, um, I'd like you just to talk about, if you don't mind, just about your own podcast, where people can find you, and then your private services if people want to uh, check out your courses that you offer as well. And remember, yeah, everyone, all the, all the links will be in the, uh, in the description as well to check out uh, Dr. Stephanie Reinel. Yeah, I really encourage you guys to check out my podcast. You know, I do speak mostly to women, but I have actually a fair majority of male listeners because I'm always hearing from males too. So it's, you know, I think it's applicable things to anybody who struggles in their relationship with food and their bodies. Um, it's called It's Not About the Food. I usually have a guest interview every week, every Wednesday, I publish a new episode. Um, and we talk about something that it's about that's not food, you know, because what I realize is, again, it's not about the food. The title kind of says it all. So our issues of food and our body have nothing to do with food and our body. And the faster we can realize that, and that was like the pivotal belief that truly opened the floodgates of my recovery is when I just finally connected the dots. Like, no, this really has nothing to do with food or my body. It has to do with, you know, my childhood, other issues, you know, that I had to work through. Um, so that's my podcast. Mondays, I'm actually starting a new segment that'll probably be out by the time this is published called Medical Mondays. And I get a lot of people who will specifically ask me, you know, some of the questions Scott asked on this interview, you know, specifically about BMI or set point weight or autoimmune disease, you know, uh, diabetes, childhood obesity, you know, all the like buzzwords, like, but what about this? But what about this? What about this? So I actually am starting to do a new segment on Mondays, really answering those questions. So if you have specific questions for me, um, that'll be great content for future episodes there. So there's a lot of really cool stuff happening on my podcast that I think you'll get a lot of value out of. Um, my website is stephanierinoldmd.com. I do have courses. If you really are interested in intuitive eating, like what I mean by that, um, 
and just kind of my different approach as paired to other people. You can check that out. I have a couple other um, courses in queue specifically about emotional eating, binge eating, and some more stuff on eating disorders. Um, if you, I do consultations virtually, so you can find all that information at Stephanie Reynold MD as well. And I'm probably most active on Instagram. So if you want to connect with me socially on social media, you can probably hang out with me there, which is Stephanie Reynold MD also. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Reynolds. And yes, all, all the links are in the description. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, just go to, to YouTube where you're watching this video and your Instagram is great. It's uh, it, uh, You do a lot of Q&A too and answer questions just freely. So I think it's great. Please check her out, follow her. Dr. Stephanie Reynolds, thank you so much for your time and answers. And that was extremely enlightening. Thanks again. Thank you, Scott. Thanks.